Hi, this is Mike Duffy, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You know, all the classes at the time were taught from a skier's perspective. And this is going to be a winter where we're going to have to help each other. You know, there's going to be inexperienced skiers out there, you know, and inexperienced snowmobiling. Everybody can help each other out. This is the winter to do it. Welcome back. You're tuned in to episode 5.1 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. My goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to season five, everybody. Maybe you're just finding the show. Maybe you've been listening for the last few seasons. Either way, welcome back. Very excited to be back for the fifth season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. You know, in the last couple months, I took a little bit of time off and was just trying to reflect whether or not the podcast is reaching the goals of what I first set out to do and I'd like to think it is, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm creating a greater sense of community within folks that are uh, either avid, recreational, backcountry, winter users, no matter of your mode of travel, um, as well as the professional level avalanche professional, whether you're a ski patroller or a guide or an educator, um, hopefully... I'm bringing something to the table, some views of other people that you might not otherwise interact with, and and we can all gain a little bit better understanding of how we make decisions in the backcountry and learn the lessons from those before us. So um, I want to hear how you think we're doing with this goal. Uh, so feel free to reach out and, and send any feedback. You can hit me up at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, visions for the future, you know, I've also had a chance to reflect on um, what I want this to become and what we want this to become because it truly is a community podcast and I want your input on it. Um, my hopes and dreams are that with this season and, and each season to come in the future that we gain new perspectives. And one of the ways that I'm going to try to do that this year is to reach outside of the borders of the United States and, and gain some um, insights from folks from other countries. So you'll probably notice a little bit more, um, a few more accents on the show. Um, you know, we'll talk to some friends in Canada, hopefully um, some folks in Europe and New Zealand as well. But uh, hopefully it doesn't stop there and we continue to, to grow the reach of interviewees, qual- quality interviewees on the Avalanche Hour podcast. Um, we also may 
include some guest hosts this year, so some um, different perspectives. If you're getting tired of just hearing me yammer on, hopefully we can get some new voices in here. Um, so we'll see how that goes. That'll be, you know, we're probably going to be dropping some of that and introducing you to that uh, sometime in the late fall. So stay tuned for that. You might have noticed that I didn't mention the name TAS in the intro. Uh, the podcast still has a robust amount of support from these folks. They've just changed their name. So here's a short introduction from our friends at MND Safety, the new name for TAS. Hi, Caleb and listeners. My name is David, and it's a great pleasure for me to say a few words in introduction of this new season. We are glad and really proud to support the Avalanche Hour podcast since the early hours, and Caleb gave me the opportunity to present quickly our company, who has recently changed its name from TAS to MND Safety. Indeed, TAS is part of the French MND Group, whose mission is to contribute to safety, leisure, and mobility for all, while respecting the natural and mountain environment. To highlight our worldwide global offer, we have decided to rebrand our four business lines around the MND name. MND Workways for lifts and cable transport solutions, MND Snow for snowmaking systems, MND Leisure for indoors and outdoor four seasons activities, and finally, MND Safety that I will introduce to you today. Our job in MND Safety is to design, manufacture, install, and maintain avalanche risk prevention system. For the last 30 years, we have worked worldwide to protect ski resorts, communication channels, roads, motorways, and railways, and industrial sites. Our solutions allow users to mainly act during the risk, right in the earth of the action, thanks to gas remote avalanche control systems. You've probably already heard about our GASX, GASFLEX, Decibel, or Obelix systems, even with some speakers of this podcast in previous seasons. We are the only ones in the world to propose racks without the use of solid explosives. It is in fact replaced by an explosive gas mix created only when needed, which means a lot of practical, ecological, and economic advantages. We have installed more than 2,800 gas racks in 30 years, around 200 systems in the US and 17 in Canada. But we also support users now, before and after the management of this avalanche danger, thanks to optional monitoring solutions, which provide essential information to aim a real global control of the avalanche risk. Our before range of solutions includes weather stations and electronic snow poles to offer a more realistic vision of weather and snow conditions as close as possible to the danger. These are surveillance and decision-helping tools for people in charge. Our after systems are mainly represented by radar, which is the most complete solution on the market for avalanche detection including alarms management and automatic access road closure in order to analyze and control avalanche danger in real time. I take the occasion to quickly thank our monitoring partners, companies, Techcom, INSYS, and GeoPreven for providing us the best solutions currently available on the market. As a conclusion, 
MND safety's priority is to guarantee first safety for users. And we have a moral commitment with the worldwide avalanche community to create and propose the future of avalanche control with innovative, non-explosive solutions respectful for the environment. Thanks again, Caleb, for the patience and honesty you share with us year after year. We are all in MND safety, so proud to support the Avalanche Hour podcast and wish you and all the listeners a wonderful fifth season and a perfect winter. Take care of yourselves and uh, safety first. Well, big thank you to David and Jay and all the fine folks at MND Safety. Um, we truly appreciate your support and the confidence that you have in the vision that we have to create a stronger community. The Avalanche Hour podcast also gets a tremendous amount of support from Ten Barrel Brewing based in Bend, Oregon. Ten Barrel is all about having a good time, and I like to have a good time. Ten Barrel's support goes beyond this podcast. They support action sports athletes in the snow, bike, and surf arenas. And for years, they've been donating 1% of their sales from the Pray for Snow Beer to protect our winners organization. Ten Barrel is all about the community events, and while they are disappointed to not have as many in-person events this winter, they will fire up the stoke from afar. You guys got to check this out. Ten Barrel's currently selling their custom-made rail jam truck. So they used to drive this old, huge military truck that they've renovated into having a big ramp um, for rail jams at their prey for snow parties. Um, and as you may know, as you may not, uh, the state of Oregon in the last month has gone through some devastating wildfires uh, just in surrounding communities to where I live. Um, upwards of, of 3,000 structures were lost um, just in an afternoon. And so 10 Barrels stepping up. They're selling their rail jam truck. This thing is insane. you got to check it out. Um, they'll sell it to the, the highest bidder, and then all the proceeds from that sale will be going to the Red Cross to help out with people that have lost their homes due to recent wildfires. So uh, just another example of 10 Barrel taking care of their community. Um, and we really appreciate the support that y'all give to the community and to this podcast. Um, so you can check out more about, about putting a bid in on this, on the rail jam truck. If you go to Bend, Oregon Craigslist, you can find it. Um, or you can check it out on their Instagram account as well. Uh, other new news, new beer for y'all to check out when you're at the grocery store thinking about the big choices in life, uh, maybe reach for the Nature Calls Mountain IPA. It's their new take on an easy sippin' East Meets West IPA. Check that out. Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. Thanks, you guys. And finally, additional support is provided by Interwest Insurance. Many thanks to the folks there, especially Keith and Chip. Uh, your continued support of the show is greatly appreciated. Check out Interwest Insurance for all your insurance needs. And some other things to think about this fall. Unfortunately, ISSW, the International Snow Science Workshop that was slated to be in Fernie um, just a few days from the release of this episode, of course, it was canceled 
due to COVID. Um, however, the fine folks in Fernie rallied and rolled with the punches and quickly came out with what seems to be a, a great virtual snow science workshop. Um, so you can find out a little bit more about that. It will be taking place this upcoming week, October 4th through 6th. Um, you can check out some of the great speakers and poster presentations from around the world from the comfort of your home or your vehicle domicile or your favorite hideout. So to register, go to vssw2020.com. Hope to see you there. If you're residing in the U.S., check out the events page on the A3 website. That stands for the American Avalanche Association, if you didn't know that. And you can find out more about when your regional snow and avalanche workshops will be held. Some will be virtual this year, of course. And it looks like some will be taking place physically, but probably socially distanced. I should add that pants are recommended for the in-person functions. The A3 website is also a great place to find out more information about avalanche courses in the United States. They have a great list of providers and provide a great outline of which course will be the right one for you. So check that out on the A3 website, which is AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. All right, today's feature presentation is going to highlight Mike Duffy. Mike Duffy is, hails from Eagle County, Colorado, and Mike's been teaching motorized specific avalanche courses to riders in the United States for over 25 years. Mike's a team leader for Eagle County, Colorado's Mountain Rescue Group, and he's also a product developer and ambassador for Backcountry Access, BCA. Uh, he has a wealth of in information about mountain riding skills, um, he's also a, a snowmobile guide um, and just all around a great guy and, and very approachable. He, it seems like, you know, I've never met him in person, but talking to him on the phone, it seems like uh, I bet Mike gets along with just about anybody out there. Um, we chat a bit about some great techniques for groups of riders to help stay safe in the backcountry. We also talk about the current state of motorized avalanche education in the United States and some avenues that riders can look to to gain more education. Mike also shed some light on some of the perceived barriers to user engagement with avalanche centers from the motorized perspective. Um, and we also talk about some of the impacts that COVID-19 might have on the upcoming winter season. So without further ado, I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Mike Duffy. Here we go. All right. Good morning, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah. Great to have you on here. Thanks for making the time. I was hoping you could introduce yourself to the to the listener base here, talk a little bit about your roles within the Avalanche community and, and some of the things that you've done in your life um, within the motorized realm of the snow and avalanche world. Sure. Do you want the backstory? You want me to head into what I do yeah, let's do. Let's start out with the backstory. Where are you from? How'd you get into Re snowmobiling? Sure, I'm originally from New Hampshire, and uh, I started skiing when I was six. I'm a skier also. I started snowmobiling at ten. I went to Plymouth State College, and then after that, I moved out west to Vail, mm. and started working in the ski shops. It's kind of funny. I was 
you know, managing ski shops and racing snowmobiles on the weekend, unbeknownst to the owner. Um, and then at one time, I was starting to think of starting a snowcat skiing business. So I started getting my avalanche training. I attended the National Avalanche School, and then I went to the National Academy of Winter Guiding with Ruby Mountain Heli Ski. Mm. And that's that's where you work, right? I do. Yeah, I do some guiding yeah. out there. Yeah, so that was in the early 90s, I think, with yeah. Joe Royer. It was an excellent experience. And then I got involved with the Vail Mountain Rescue Group and how I got into avalanche education was in the early 90s. I was on two body recoveries in the East Vail Chutes and within three weeks. And they're pretty sad accidents. I knew both people. And we're getting a lot of calls for going on avalanche rescues. And some of the members of the team, headed by Dan Aguilar, decided we'd rather spend our time educating people about avalanches, preventing the accidents, and then going on rescues. So we started teaching classes up at the Eastvale Racket Club. They became popular. Colorado Mountain College picked it up. And we're going full steam ahead with avalanche classes. And at one point, it was like, either we need to cut back because it's taking quite a bit of time, or we need to go full go full-time with this. And at the same time, in the late 1990s, snowmobile avalanche fatalities were on the increase. Snowmobilers were, almost every year, were number one for fatalities. Midwest riders were 50% of the snowmobile avalanche fatalities in the U.S. And, you know, all the classes at the time were taught from a skier's perspective. And I came up with a curriculum for snowmobilers from a snowmobiler's perspective. I taught my first a snowmobile-specific class in 1996 up on Vail Pass. And then 2006, I taught my first classroom session in the Midwest. And some guy convinced his wife to let 30 guys come to his house and take an avalanche class. And I don't know how he did it, but that was Patrick Foss. And John Lang also helped organize that. And there was big interest in snowmobile avalanche classes. The next year, I went to the Minneapolis Snowmobile Show, had a few, you know, classroom awareness sessions, and we had people from five states show up. And I knew I was on to something. I tried try to get in contact with the manufacturers of snowmobiles to get them to help promote avalanche education because the fatalities were skyrocketing. And I wasn't getting any response and nothing at all. And I didn't have any inroads in the snowmobile industry. So at one point, I said, you know, I'm going to teach a class where their headquarters are. So I went up to Thief River Falls, Minnesota, which is where Articat snowmobiles are produced. I rented a meeting room, promoted the class, and by luck, I had some Articat employees show up. And they're very receptive. They said, we need to change things. They picked up backcountry access avalanche gear. They started training their employees, and they've been fantastic. Um, and then I was hired by BCA, <laughs> and you know, for the motor help with the motorized market. And I remember Bruce Edgerly pulled me into a room and said, "What percentage of our sales will be motorized?" I I told him fifty percent. He looked at me and said, "No way." What year was and, this? And uh, oh man, that was. I would say, I think it was 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And now BCA is the leader in, you know, the motorized market for avalanche gear mm -hmm. because they make snowmobile specific products 
and they listen to their customers and they have a lot of people testing products. We really test it. We get feedback from customers and ambassadors. And so I did some work for BCA and, you know, I remember at the time, you know, I was training with Steve Christie and he was wondering, well, won't snowmobiles just go into a ski shop and buy their avalanche gear there? I said, no, because a lot of ski shops are against motorized use. And he goes, I'm not sure about that. So we were in Silverthorne, Colorado. He goes, let's walk in a ski shop. And we walked in and within 10 feet of the door was this poster. And it said, do you want this? And it showed snowmobiles in Yellowstone or this. And it showed like coyotes running through the snow. And Steve and I looked at it and we said, there's your answer right there. He goes, yeah, we need to start opening up snowmobile dealerships as, you know, selling BCA product. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's been tough with the snowmobile industry to get through. Um, you know, 2008, the winter of 2008-2009 was a really bad year for snowmobile avalanche fatalities in North America. In Canada, 73% of the fatalities were motorized users. In the United States, it was 59%. And there are a lot of basic mistakes. Um, and so that year was the International Snowmobile Congress was in Iowa. I was invited to talk and I went on my own dime. And I gave a speech that pretty much said these accidents were inexcusable, very preventable, and point out the mistakes that were being made. And they listened. And during the first intermission, the public relations director for Skidoo ran up to me and said, my boss needs to hear this. And he went and got his boss and they listened to the rest of the presentation. And they came up to me afterwards and said, we're going to do something about this. And I'm thinking, no one has done anything. I didn't have a lot of faith in that they'd do anything. Well, that they said, we're going to do classes, free classes in Canada in 2010 and 2011 we're going to do it in the United States. And they followed through and they've done it. And they've put tens of thousands of people through avalanche education, free avalanche education at dealerships. And with a concerted effort with others in the industry, snowmobile avalanche fatalities have dropped tremendously since then. You know, our we used to be number one for fatalities almost every single year. And now it's like one, once every five years. And snowmobile avalanche fatalities have pretty, pretty much been cut in half. What does the instructor base look like throughout these dealerships? Is it you or do you have a, um, a group of cohorts that are going around and, and to visiting these dealerships? It, it's me for the Skidoo dealerships. In Canada, they have different instructors go around. So I do the U.S. and it's a crazy schedule for about six weeks. Um, I do about you know, 11 states. It's crazy. Um, but you know, the attendance, we average a hundred people per class and it's, you know, it's been great. You know, sometimes I think the record is 320 people in a class. Wow. That's outstanding, Mike. And and this is all, um, classroom based or, or inside based. There's no field portion of this to general awareness. Exactly. It goes above awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you know, I researched the snowmobile avalanche fatalities in the U.S., and it's like my, I'm seeing what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and the education is steered by that. 
Right. So, you know, it's like some years people spend the night, you know, it's a big problem, people spending the night out not getting help. So we cover how to use a GPS, you know, and how to use an inReach and just, it's all geared towards what's currently happening. Sure. And I, I would imagine you don't necessarily have to have snow on the ground to get those started. No, yeah. we start in October. Right. Great. That's when people start getting interested. Cool. Well, it, I mean, it's it's very clear that you've been a pioneer in motorized avalanche education. Um, what other hats do you wear throughout the year? Oh, so I do some contract work for BCA testing product and, you know, um, developing products and some sales and marketing with them. I also, four years ago, I started working for a uh, military contractor called Cameron Advanced Mobility. And they we developed a program to teach elite military groups how to travel in the backcountry on snowmobiles, mm. which involves avalanche education also. So we're training Navy SEALs and FBI hostage rescue team members. All right. And then in addition, you have uh, another company, Avalanche One. Yes, and that's I teach. I teach for different avalanche schools, motorized classes, AAI, Silverton Avalanche School. And jumping on back a little bit, you know, I took my Av Pro, I believe it was in 2008, 2009. I remember you know, a week long class, you had to do it on skis, and we're skinning up outside Breckenridge, and we're skinning up to these high peaks. And I'm thinking, you know, that just took three hours. I could have done that in five minutes on my snowmobile. This is why snowmobilers aren't taking level one and two classes because they can only do it on skis or split boards. And so at about that time, Silverton contacted me. Silverton Avalanche School contacted me and we started motorized classes where you could actually take the class on your snowmobile. Right. That's been a huge hit. And, and, and the growth in that sector of avalanche education has been huge in the last few years, correct? It is. You know Teaching the classes nationwide for Ski-Doo and private classes all over the country, a lot of people are saying, you know, we emphasize this is an awareness class. To really learn, you have to get on the snow. Mm. And people would come up to me every year. And it's like, I go to your awareness class every year. I'm set. I said, you are not set. You need to get on the snow. That's where you really learn. Um, you know, you just can't. Awareness isn't enough with the machines we have now and the terrain you're going into. Awareness doesn't cut it. Sure. Um, are, are there any barriers to the those field sessions, like in terms of the skill of riders, or the skills that the riders have when they show up? You know, are, are those um, – how, how does that work if you have a, a group of riders that's very skilled <laughs> and then somebody that's just bought their first snowmobile and they're trying to learn to ride on the sure. on during the course because we see that in in ski ski and snowboard courses quite often as well I think somebody's cutting their skins in the parking lot right oh that's very common to see it does happen with level one classes it's not about the riding it's pretty much accessing the terrain we get up there you know we're using trails or jeep roads so it's not that difficult once we get up there there's going through some powder metals We'll get everybody through it. We don't care if they get stuck. And some people do show up and they say, well, this is my second time on a snowmobile. Mm. And we'll get them through there. Um, we'll, we won't turn people away. And we don't make them feel bad for getting stuck. But we'll ride their sled through that section. Right. Oh, that sounds pretty helpful. What are, what are the your usual kind of student-to-instructor ratios in these courses? Same as skiing. Mm -hmm. um, six to one. Okay. Gotcha. 
One of the biggest differences that I see immediately between um, skiing and, and riding a machine, whether it's a snow bike or a snowmobile, um, is just the pace that you're moving through terrain, right? Talk a little bit about, um, and you're poised perfectly to talk about this as a skier and a, a machinist, um, but what are some differences in, in viewing and analyzing avalanche train on a machine versus uh, on sure. skis? So when I'm skinning up things, you can check with your pole. You know, it's punching through. You can feel the woofing. With a snowmobile, you're going at a fast speed. You won't feel the collapse. So mm. we have some tricks we use, um, you know, to analyze the stability. We're covering a lot more terrain also. So it's just a different way of doing it. I just wrote an article in snow, for Snow West Magazine, which is in the October issue, and it covers the question you just asked. And the article is called Analyzing Avalanche Terrain on the Fly. And the gist of the article is when many snowmobilers or motorized users look at terrain, they're wondering if they will get stuck, if they can make the line, what their plan B is. And that's their primary focus. They're just like, can I make this? You know, will the machine make it? What's my plan B? I'm definitely looking at those things. But the gist of the article is I'm looking at those things, but my prime focus is different. I'm analyzing the terrain and the snowpack as it relates to avalanches. And so, you know, that's what we're doing. We're looking at these things. And the reality is, you know, we cover terrain at a very fast pace and we don't set routes ahead of time. You know, you know, some motorized avalanche classes like we're going to set our route for the day. Well, that's very unrealistic. You know a general area and pretty much when you're leading a group or you're going, you see powder off to the left, you're heading that way and then you're analyzing on the fly, which creates some problems because you have to make very quick decisions. And one of the pointers I like to give is it doesn't hurt to stop and look around and look for clues. Mm. <laughs> and so, so it's just like, you know, skiing, um, analyzing on the fly. The first of all is your preparation at the beginning of the day. You're looking at the avalanche forecast, the weather, you know, how's the weather contributing to the avalanche danger? Is it affecting your visibility to see what's above you and what, what the uh, clues to instability are? And then after looking at those two things, we're eliminating areas. Like you should talk to your group and say, hey, we're not going here today. And then we're doing full gear checks. And snowmobilers tend to be lack on the gear check. You know, they'll walk up with each other with their transceiver and see if they're transmitting. Well, if you're not proficient with a transceiver, they can skip over one person easily. I'm not a big fan of those beacon checkers on the side of the trail because it's only telling you if you're transmitting, you don't know if the people in your group can switch over to search. You don't even know if they're good at rescue. So I like to do a full transceiver check. All right. Would you, this is a great, great, this is going to be one of the earlier episodes of the season. Um, Mike, would you mind just kind of running us through how you do a transceiver check with a group of snow machiners? Sure. So we all just get in a circle we pull out our transceivers. I'm looking around to see what type of transceiver everyone has. If there's a transceiver that some people may not be familiar with, I'll have that person explain the transceiver. It's like, how do you turn this one off? How do you go to search? How do you go to transmit? And just get everybody familiar with it because if there is a problem, the time of the problem isn't the time to figure out the transceiver. So we get familiar and everybody switches to transmit. 
relays their battery strength. Okay, so if we know if anybody needs to switch off, you switch out batteries right away. And then what we'll do is everybody will go to search. And you realize right away who knows how to do it and who doesn't. And if they don't know how to go to search, probably going to spend some time in the parking lot doing some transceiver drills. So everybody's on search. The leader will switch back to transmit. All those people on search will walk away from the person, figure out the effective range of their transceiver. And once they figure out the range, they'll pull them on 80, walk back towards the leader, and they practice searching. They go towards the leader and past the leader. Um, this has, you know, snowmobilers tend to have a lot of electronic devices on themselves, and many of those will cause electrical interference. So they realize right away if they're getting their full range with the transceiver, if they need to turn off a device or keep it, more, you know, three feet away, maybe put it on the, in the tunnel bag or on the sled. And then at that point, everybody switches to transmit. The leader goes down the trail about 100 yards, shuts off their sled, steps away from the sled, and goes to search, and each rider spreads out about 30 or 40 feet, goes by the leader, and he's checking, he or she is checking to see if they're transmitting, gives them the okay signal as they go by. And then the last person in line checks the leader, makes sure they have switched back over to transmit. All right, that, that's was a, our, that was a great review of, of a beacon check, and sounds to me like that's the, the proper and, and kind of the only method to, to do that. I prefer it because it gets people practicing every day, and BCA has done a bunch of studies and have shown you know the average person practices one hour a year, mm. which isn't enough. Right, certainly not. Well, now, of course, we have the, the rescue courses as well that are standalone courses, um, next to the, the rec level one or rec level two. Right. And, and so yeah. that's a great opportunity for people to get a good baseline of rescue skills and, and is something that should be done every couple, two to three years. I would encourage folks to do that. I agree. Yeah. Things are changing and we're figuring out more efficient ways to, to perform avalanche rescues, um, which is a great thing, but it only works if people learn those techniques. Yeah, the rescue skills are definitely disposable. Mm-hmm. It's just like CPR. You know, we we have to recertify our CPR every couple of years. And it should be exactly the same with avalanche rescue skills, in my sure. opinion. Um, I agree. And we do specialized motorized, you know, rescue classes. We're actually using the snowmobiles or or snow bikes performing the uh, rescue. Right, and I, I saw you wrote an article. Where I can't remember where that was. Maybe in the Avalanche Review a couple of years right. ago. Right. And then Bruce Edgerly and I co-authored an article that was went to ISSW mm-hmm. and, yeah, on using snowmobiles and rescue and how to do it. What are some key points there, Mike? Well, you know, I've been with Mountain Rescue for about 30 years. And, and traditionally in rescue, people use snowmobiles to get on site. And then they park the snowmobiles and they hike up the debris. Well... I've been on a few rescues where we'll snowmobile right up to the top and then we'll work down from there and it's, you can cover it much faster. So we're using the snowmobile to get up on the debris. So, and you can look for visual clues right away. You can actually do a transceiver search on a snowmobile and then, and you know, we do quite a few rescue scenarios at Silverton and all my classes, we'll do a five person burial. 
for a scenario. And three will have transceivers and two will not. And snowmobilers on a regular basis pull this off in 10 minutes or less. And they'll use the snowmobiles. If we're on top of a hill and the scenario goes a few hundred yards downhill, they'll use the snowmobiles. They'll have the leader. They'll use the snowmobiles to get to the most likely points of burial. So you'll send a couple people down to the toe on snowmobiles. As they're going down, they're looking for visual clues. And when, once they get to the toe, they're doing a quick 360 looking for visuals. And then they're shutting off the sleds and doing their transceiver search. And I think the record for our class for five burials is four searchers had all five unburied in four minutes. Wow, that's impressive yeah. numbers, for, yeah, especially for people that are just learning these skills. True, and you know, snowmobilers tend to be good rescuers because they're used to digging, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they uh, they're they it's teamwork. You know, when a snowmobile gets stuck, everybody works together to get it out. And so, you know, it's I've worked with a lot some heli guides down in Silverton, and it's their first time teaching with a motorized course. And it's like I'll tell them, it's like you'll be surprised what you see here, and they're shocked. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, just a different technique that really works. And so Bruce Edgerly and I wrote a paper on it. And, you know, we're trying to get mountain rescue groups to use the snowmobile. The thing is with riding a snowmobile on avalanche debris, it takes a higher level of skill. So you do have to have a higher skill set for that. Sure. Yeah, a little bit more difficult riding there. Um, mm-hmm. You had mentioned that, that w- once you get to maybe an area where people are going to be boondocking or riding and high marking, um, you know, you shut off the machines and kind of try and get everybody on the same page. And I, I believe you led into this by saying, you know, we don't always go out. We don't have a GPS track that we've created on Gaia like you might on a, on a ski tour or something. And so maybe just talk a little bit about the importance of, of what you're talking about when you're, when you're shutting off the machines, taking your helmets off, looking people in the eyes and, and talking about a plan or, or terrain to specifically avoid? What does that look like? Sure. You know, so at the beginning of the day, you know, we're looking at the forecast, we're looking at the weather, and then just like heli skiing, it's like we're taking this off our plate for today. Mm. You know, these are the green areas, and we're going to analyze. Do we need more information, you know, as we're going along? How reliable, what's our confidence in the forecast? And then with groups, we're always going over the basics. You know, how do you keep this group together? And, you know, when we train the military, it's like, okay, these are the basic rules. You know, if you don't see the person behind you, you stop. And if you get to a fork in the trail or we're making a turn, you stop there and make sure the next person sees it. If you don't see the person behind you, you know, we go back to the last scene point. And then, you know, snowmobilers use radios. Mm-hmm. Um, the BC link has been amazing, so it's much easier to keep track. But when we're out in the field, you know, covering, you know, analyzing on the fly, I think is what you want me to get at. Um, you know, we don't have to be efficient on a snowmobile. You have horsepower. You can go anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is um, we're trying to figure out what's really happening in the snowpack. Your snowmobile track will tell you a lot. You know, you're riding along and then all of a sudden you're getting stuck and you shouldn't be, you know, you're hitting facets or you're doing a powder turn and then you're busting through, your ski just drops to the bottom. And that's telling us right away that, yeah, there's some weak layers underneath. And so when we stop, one trick I do when I stop is I'll stop, I shut off my sled. And as the other sleds approach, I'm seeing if it collapses, listening for the sound, for the feel. Where if my sled was running, I wouldn't be able to notice that in most situations. 
And then when we're riding, you know, the key thing we're looking at is slope angle. You know, I'm looking at the aspect in relationship to, you know, the avalanche problems. And then I'm always looking at the consequences. If I'm sidehilling, I'm looking below me. Where will this take me? I'm looking above me. I'm keeping an eye on the other riders. You know, where are they in relationship to me? You know, can they trigger something that's going to take me out? Do I, you know, if someone's cutting above me, I need to have a plan B. I need to get out of that situation. So I think, you know, everything's happening at a much faster pace. You have to be very aware of your surroundings. Your surroundings and the other riders, right? Oh, exactly. That's a big problem. And you can be doing everything right. And another group comes above you and it's a problem. Yeah, what what is the what's the culture around that, Mike? Do you, like I mean, I can imagine that there are some people that don't really like to be told what to do. Um, that is a problem for sure. Mm-hmm. How do you deal? I with think that? it's a, oh, politely. <laughs> you know, it's it's tough to get through. And some people have said, you know, um, there's been you know I had some students in class who. Uh, they were out one day and they knew the danger was high and they actually didn't even have transceivers at that point. And they're going out and they saw some guys going to high mark and they said, should we say something? And one of the guys was thinking, no, because if you say something, they usually belittle you, tell you they know what they're doing. And these guys went out and rode and when they're coming back, they heard the helicopters or they, I'm sorry, the helicopters came in later they came back and they saw the slope had slid and there was a guy scrambling around and they went in and helped recover the body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they felt bad that they didn't say anything, but they said most people won't listen. Um, I ride with a lot of people. Some of them are very long-term locals. Some have never taken an avalanche class. And if I show up on day one saying we're going to do transceiver checks, this is how we're going to do things, you know, they'll never let me ride with them again. So I just go about gently and, you know, I'll be out there, I'll dig a pit, and it's amazing. They'll come over and it's like, what are you doing? And mm-hmm. then we, I'll do a stability test, and they see it, and they get fascinated, and they want to learn more. And then you slowly but surely get them up to speed, and then some of them will take classes. So that's just, that's my approach. I don't, you know, I try to explain the why, of, you know, they shouldn't be doing things the way they are. And I think that's going to be a huge problem this year with the increased backcountry use. All backcountry users, you know, if you see some people making bad choices, say something, you know, help them out because mountain rescue is going to be busy this winter. Right. Yeah. It's certainly worth like feeling a little bit sheepish or embarrassed by, uh, you know, maybe not getting the reaction that you'd like from somebody. Right. If, if you try and do a little bit of light education on the fly, mm-hmm. but, but certainly so much better than the alternative. If just like you described, Right of mm-hmm. of there being a body recovery on the other right. end, so um, I think we can all work on taking taking feedback from other people. You know, this sure. is, we're trying to grow the community and grow a positive community, and and um, it's everybody can help out with that. Um, you've talked a bit about some of the barriers to the motorized crowd getting into avalanche education or buying gear at ski shops. What are what are some ways that you feel like um, avalanche centers can do a better job to connect with the motorized crowd? And I should say this is a, a listener question. 
Well, you know, I get asked by some of the avalanche centers, why aren't more snowmobilers attending these events? And I have to be honest with them. I said, well, some of your events are sponsored by entities that support groups that are against motorized use. So if snowmobilers go to this event, right away they don't feel welcome because it's like, well, that company that's sponsoring this supports this group that's against motorized use. And it's like, we're not welcome here. And that's the message it gives. And the response from the avalanche centers is, well, we need that money. It's like, well, it's very discriminatory against snowmobilers, and snowmobilers are extremely aware of who is for them and who is against them. And the interesting thing with snowmobilers and these groups against motorized use, most snowmobilers are also human-powered users, too. They mountain bike, they kayak, they ski, they do everything. It's not motorized only the sports they do so they're eliminating a key market by um, being supported by anti-motorized groups and it's you know it's amazing to me it's amazing that still goes on in this day Mm. what what do you see as the solution to kind of have everybody meet in the middle that's a tough one you know some companies um they won't support you know, events that are run by, you know, non-motorized, anti-motorized groups, mm. you know, it's like, it should, I don't, that's a tough question. What can, um, what can people do as individuals? What can, uh, you know, s- s- somebody with a snow machine do to change that, that paradigm, you know, like how do we ride responsibly, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. You know, you we have to be respectful of other users. You know, I'm always that way. Um, you know, slow down when other users are there, help people out. And, you know, a lot of people are against snowmobiles, but once they get on one, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> they love it. And, you know, when, when I started working for BCA, I think there, were, there was one snowmobile that owned in the company. We get them out there and they're like, oh, these things are great. And so there's many more people with snowmobiles and they're skiers and snowmobilers and they'll snowmobile one day and ski the next. And, you know, it's just get to know the other users. You know, we're all out there to enjoy the backcountry. We're all out there. We want it preserved. You know, no one wants to destroy it. Now with any group, there's some people that don't respect it as well, but, you know. One thing I think of is super easy is just to take your helmet off, right? So oh, that's a good idea. It's it's just I think to the non-motorized crowd, having a full face helmet that like people can't really see your face, it, it can be really intimidating, right? And it's mm-hmm. a super small thing that when you have a helmet on, you don't think about that. You don't think about you know how you look. It's just I mean it's proper protection. Nobody questions that, but but I think maybe when you are making connections with a different type of user. Maybe just sure. trying to get on the same level just by simply taking your helmet off might help. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And that's a good, great idea. You kind of touched on managing the group of riders and accountability. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd talk about with that? Sure. You know, the one thing I've noticed is um, people tend to act as individuals and in group in a, you know, they're not acting as a team in the backcountry. They're mm-hmm. acting as individuals who are riding in a group. And it's much more effective to act as a team and cover each other's backs. I feel like a lot of snowmobilers, they meet up and it's like they're concerned about their powder. They're really not covering each other's bases. They're not making sure the entire group does a transceiver check. They're not making sure the entire group, you know, is talking about the avalanche forecast. And so um, do you ever 
kind of utilize a, a leader for the day or, or does that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's, uh, you know, it's usually the person who knows the, the terrain the best because when we ride in different areas, you know, it's who knows the train, who won't get us lost is usually the leader. And then that person may not be the most experienced with avalanches. So someone else needs to step in and say, hey, we need to do a full transceiver check. What was the forecast? What's our progression of terrain today? What should we avoid? Mm-hmm. Got it. So, Mike, we're as as you alluded to, we're all expecting an increase in the backcountry this year due to the COVID nineteen pandemic and you know the the pressures of of giving people space around ski areas and and I I would imagine that more and more people are buying snow machines to either go snow machining or access backcountry skiing and snowboarding. Um, what's your take on appropriate management strategies for the upcoming season or how are you going to act differently when you go out? Oh, this is, you know, it's, this is going to be an interesting winter. You know, I'm with the mountain rescue team. We had record rescues this summer. You know, people just newcomers going into the backcountry unprepared. You know, there are some weekends where we had, you know, one Saturday we had five rescue calls in one day. And mountain rescue teams are just getting worked. Um, there's not a lot of confidence in ski areas being, you know, you being able to ski at a ski area this winter whenever you want. So backcountry gear sales are going up. Snowmobile sales. I have had more people contact me. It's like, what kind of snowmobile should I buy? Mm -hmm. Because if the resort's shut down or they can't get on that day, they want to still ski the powder. So there'll be a lot of new people in the backcountry. And that's just a you know, recipe for disaster. Um, you know, how do we get the message out? The good thing is we had, you know, in the springtime when they shut down the skiers, it was boom, it shut down. People were like, this is the best skiing of the year. And they started hitting the back country. Well, you know, places like Loveland Pass, the parking was a problem. Cars are in the road. It's dangerous. So they plowed in the parking lots and they did this at Vail Pass also. Well, what that did, that drove people to more dangerous areas. And I think, you know, this year, leave the parking lots open. You're going to have increased use, have more parking lots, you know, have people there educating people, have signs of making people aware. But we need to be proactive in this. Um, you know, uh, you know, I've written more articles this year from magazines and online content than ever. We're trying to get the message out in the next couple of months. So people are thinking about avalanches and the danger, you know, ski do is doing an online virtual education series, 16 segments. They want people to get the training. Um, I know I'm offering more level one classes for motorized users. Every weekend is already booked and, you know, we're training rescue teams. We're trying to get everybody ready. I think the retail shops need to get on board. It's going to be a difficult season. Just getting the word out. That's, that's certainly key. Um, you mentioned some online resources, you know, most of avalanche education, the, the formalized, especially rec one and two, are going to have an online component. And then I guess an upside to this is maybe a little bit more time in the field, right? Oh, it's a great year to take a class because, you know, with my classes, we're using a version of Backcountry Ascender, which is an online learning platform that's self-paced on your own time. You don't have to listen to a Zoom meeting or anything. So you just start picking your way through it. It's kind of addicting because you earn points. 
you know, you read a paragraph, have to answer a question, you get points. So they do that, and then they only have to show up for the on snow portion. Mm-hmm. And we start in the morning and go till five. So you get actually more time on the snow. And I think it'll be more realistic, especially from the motorized users, because when you show up for an avalanche class, you spend a couple hours inside, you're discussing the forecast, everything, and then you go out. Well, that's not very realistic. We're going to meet in the parking lot. We're going to do it on the fly and just like you would with your riding group. Right. Very, very realistic to what it, you know, we, we train like we fight, right? Exactly. But the problem I see this year is the demand for avalanche classes is greater than the supply. And there'll be a lot of people that will not be able to get the on snow training. Hmm. So what, what would you suggest for them? I mean, other, other online resources, are they able to do this backcountry ascender program and not do the field session? Exactly. You know, they can do backcountry ascenders free online. There'll be video segments online. Skidoo has a 16-segment series coming out. You know, they can get the online. But, you know, the problem with the new user is some people choose not to be educated, mm-hmm. you know. And it's good to find a mentor in a sport too, you know, join a snowmobile club, go on their club rides. You can learn so much from those people. And, you know, skiing, it's, you know, the problem with skiing, people buying skins for the first time, they have the ability to ski anything. The message we have to get out is, is this the right day to be skiing it? And the other problem was this spring when the ski resorts shut down, they were skiing a pretty stable snowpack. If they don't get access in December or January to the ski resorts, they're in a much more unstable snowpack, which, you know, I think they may have gotten a false confidence with the snowpack in the spring. Mm, That's a really good point, Mike. Something to definitely be aware of. So I was wondering, you know, one other thing I'm thinking about is what are the rules going to be for uphill access this year? So Mm. you can't get on the mountain you know, with your past, what are they going to do if you skin up? Is there going to be a problem with people ducking underneath the ropes to get inbounds, you know, rather than vice versa, you know? So I don't know. You know, everybody thinks, you know, it's amazing how popular uphill access has become. Is that going to still be allowed? Right. I mean, That's interesting. Uh, it's, man, and it's crazy because nobody really knows. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're going to just have to see how things play out a little bit here, I think. True. A um, couple of listener questions here for you, Mike. Um, sure. Just, I think, more from your BCA uh, role, but somebody's looking for a recommendation on a on a new pack for a good amount of storage for a, a new patroller, somebody starting to ski patrol. What's maybe the best BCA pack out there for them? You know, the main thing is... Uh, most people look at the volume of the pack first. What I look for is what's your torso length. And BCA packs come in all these different sizes. So your you know, torso length is key. You know, is it you don't want it banging into your helmet or riding too low on your hips. So the best thing to do is find a pack that fits your body first and then worry about the capacity. Ski patrollers have to carry a lot more. Um, you know, try it on and see which one fits best. You know, BCA makes packs that are made some are made for bigger people and bigger loads mm-hmm. especially in the snowmobile market you know we have you know snowmobilers vary tremendously in size we have everything from a float 12 for a smaller person up to you know the float 25 turbo that's designed with longer shoulder straps and a bigger waist strap for the bigger riders 
Mm. I've seen some photos of you wearing kind of the mountain vest too. Is that a oh, yeah. popular item with the um, snowmobilers and snow bikers? Extremely popular. You know, that came about, you know, I kind of threw that idea at them years ago. I used to race snowmobiles and you have to wear a protective vest. So if you get run over, you hit the handlebars, you don't break your ribs. So once I stopped racing, started mountain riding, it's like you feel naked without that protective vest. And, you know, a trauma being such a part of avalanches, I'd wear the protective vest, put a transceiver over it and the harness and then the jacket and then an airbag pack. Well, to get all those things to work together, kind of a problem the vest would bind a little bit underneath the jacket on warm days would overheat so then i got a vest uh that went over my jacket and one thing i realized when i put the backpack over the protective vest it distributed the pressure much more evenly it was much more comfortable but the problem was your shoulder straps would end up in your armpits and it was uncomfortable so then i Tech vest, I introduced tech vest to BCA and they tried to work out a deal where they put an airbag on a tech vest. Well, they, the companies couldn't work together, so BCA went ahead and made their own. And at that time, BCA was purchased by K2 and we had to show hard data that this would sell and we couldn't. So it was put on the shelf for a couple of years and they experimented with different materials. Well, in the meantime, in British Columbia, um, some of the vests that were currently on the market were selling really well. And so we purchased a couple of vests and we went and tried them. And we got, we tried them and we're like, this is kind of interesting. It feels great in the store, but when you go to ride with it, it bounces around. So you have to tighten the side straps and it restricts your breathing. And then the material of the vest um, wasn't breathable. So you get hot. So BCA came out with a vest with a waist belt. It was ventilated. It has a transceiver pocket in the front. It can integrate the BC link radio into it. And we tried it and it's been a home run. It's super comfortable. Now it comes in three sizes. So you put on one item that has everything on it. Right. And, and maybe you don't need quite as much capacity in that vest if you have a, a tunnel bag or something as well, right? Exactly. That's what we're teaching is, you know, put the essentials to do rescue, the overnight first aid all in the pack and then extra gear can go in the tunnel bag because every you know if your mountain riding is very aggressive and you're burning a lot of calories and you know a lot of people that don't snowmobile think well you're just sitting on a machine riding around <laughs> well when we train the navy seals some of those guys have the garmin watches on that tracks how many calories they burn and some guys are burning seven to nine thousand calories in the day snowmobiling yeah it's amazing it's crazy how how much work it is, I can imagine. And I had the same, when I got into dirt biking, I had the oh, yeah. same mentality, right? <laughs> Moving from mountain biking to dirt biking, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get a good workout. And I've been the most worked in my life from <laughs> like awesome. hard dirt biking, right? And I can only imagine that snow machining is the same way. Oh, yeah. It's even more so than dirt biking because, you know, when you get stuck in four feet of snow <laughs> and, you know, you're wearing all that gear and it's like, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's interesting. How long you been dirt biking? Uh, maybe I don't know, eight years now, something like that. Okay, it's yeah, one it's, of my favorite things to do. It's a great workout. Yeah, people do everything, and that's the thing. You know, mountain biking, dirt biking, everything. So yeah, yeah, yeah we need to kind of stop drawing the lines in the sand. I think you know. Oh, I agree. Yeah, it's it's time. So if you yeah. if you're drawing lines in the sand, you're listening to this 
cut it out. Come on, let's all get to let's all get along here. <laughs> and this is going to be a winter where we're going to have to help each other. You know, there's going to be inexperienced skiers out there, you know, and inexperienced snowmobilers. Everybody can help each other out. This is the winter to do it because it'll it'll come back to help everybody. You know, if someone's doing a line and it's like, hey, that's not a good idea. Someone's having a hard time skinning out of a place. Give them a toe on the snowmobile. You know, right. Mike, another listener question from a, a mutual friend, Cronin. He's always a, a great <laughs> contributor to the show. But um, he's wondering what meteorological factor most commonly contributes to the rise of avalanche hazard. Maybe you could talk about several of the contributing factors um, to rising avalanche hazard, but then talk about what you think is the most um, most commonly contributor to the rise of avalanche hazard you know is is h2o is you know and the basics you you know people used to always say you get snow and wind you get avalanches well the one thing my research has shown me with snowmobilers and researching the accidents is most riders don't understand persistent weak layers mm. and you know it's just like all these accidents are happening on days with persistent weak layers and one of the messages i'm trying to get across is you know i think it's hard to believe but a, a lot of snowmobilers still don't check the avalanche forecast and we're pushing hard and you know some of the avalanche centers are doing a great job like mark staples in utah he does some great videos and they're very you know receptive to snowmobiling he's snowmobiling he's a real good snowmobiler and you know graham predator in alaska the chugach avalanche center they're all using snowmobiles and they get along great with snowmobilers um but to get the message out, check the forecast and understand persistent weak layers. You know, it's so sad to see all these fatalities happening with persistent weak layers. People don't know how to manage those problems. And we really, that's one of the main things I teach is it's not the danger rating, it's the avalanche problem you have to look at because medium, uh, moderate danger doesn't mean necessarily mean moderate size avalanches. Hmm. So how Did I you, answer the question you were looking for? Yeah, par partly. How would you, um, what would you suggest people do to, to deal with persistent weak layers or persistent slab avalanche type? Well, you, most people don't understand it. So the number, the most common factor in motorized avalanche fatalities in the last five years has been lack of advanced avalanche training. They have never taken an on-snow course. So if they had taken an on-snow course, hopefully they were taught about persistent weak layers and how they're managed and how, you know, tracks on the hill does not mean it's stable. It just means someone hasn't hit, hit the trigger spot or the weak point and that they need to alter their riding. It's, you know, there's... You have to avoid those areas on those days. Stay off the 30 to 45 degree slopes. Be aware of remote triggers when persistently clears are present. And just, you can still have fun on the snowmobile in the flats, you know, and keep it low angle. You can go in tight trees, you know, that are evergreens. Stay safe there. You know, where skiers, you're relying on gravity. We don't have to rely on gravity to have fun. Seems like one of the biggest advantages to snow machining is you can have fun on the flats. You can totally stay out of avalanche train if the right. hazard rating and avalanche problem type warrant it. Oh, exactly. It's just, you know, as we all know, you know, 
avalanches are the problem and train selection is the solution and snowmobiles just have to you know you can't have a set in your mind you're climbing that on that day you have to with the snowmobile especially where i live you have to be disciplined enough to check the forecast disciplined enough to have the knowledge to know when not to go and be patient and wait until conditions are right mm, oftentimes the hardest part <laughs> yes but with the, as you said, in a snowmobile, you can go rip around the yeah. flats and have a good time. And get so. a feel for the snowpack, right? You can you can dig oh, yeah. your track in and then put that machine on edge, and you can see the upper layers of the snowpack without even pulling a shovel oh, yeah. out. I would imagine. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Mike, you got any? Yeah, you've you've sprinkled in some good stories here, but any good stories of a of a a close call or an accident or rescue that you've been on or, or just a pivotal moment in your career when things really clicked for you? Oh, pivotal moments. You know, I, I'm constantly learning. I'm very fortunate. I work for different avalanche schools. I'm working with different instructors. Brendan Cronin was one of them. And, you know, I'm always learning from other instructors. I'm always attending seminars and things like that. You know, I'm going to more classes this year and just getting different perspectives on things. I must admit, uh, you know, the Avalanche Hour pod, podcast has been awesome. I've learned so much and just, you know, learning from the top people in the industry has been great. As far as close calls and things like that, I've been caught in a few small avalanches, you know, skiing, um, knocked off my feet, no close calls. I think, you know, when I was learning, I was more conservative in train choices. And I believe that's from my experience with Vail Mountain Rescue Group. Early in the group, I went on quite a few avalanche body recoveries, which, you know, definitely has an impact uh, seeing that and, you know, losing friends in avalanches. So I was more conservative as I was learning. And I had some great mentors. Um, with snowmobiles itself, we use snowmobiles to slope cut. You know, instead of, you know, we cover so much terrain, there's no way we can do a stability test, uh, you know, dig a pit on every slope or do two pits. So we use the snowmobiles on short, steep test slopes. And so we get avalanches to go on a regular basis. I've never fallen off the sled doing that. There's, it's one of those things. Don't try this at home unless you have the proper knowledge. Mm. What, what, Mike, what sort of margin are you able to build in on a, on a snowmobile, just having the ability to throttle out of stuff. Is that oh, part makes, of your margin? Yes. And just the speed, you know, you're going, you can go across it quickly, you know, and that makes a huge difference. You know, you can get out of the way quickly. It makes all the difference in the world. Right. And, you know, snowmobiles can run on water so they can run on a moving avalanche. But, you, you know, you can, there's different techniques to it. You know, one of the things we'll find a short, steep slope to a shallow arch on the bottom. You can keep your speed up, and then everybody's watching from, an, you know, a safe zone. Their eyes are on you, and it's a slope that's low consequence. It's, you're not doing deep slabs or anything like that. Another thing, you can cut the slope up high and cut across it, and, you know, if it goes, you, the mass is below you. Right. And it, and it seems like it's ever important to have everybody on the same page when you're doing that sort of stuff, kind of managed hazard hazard uh, investigation, really. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, that's another problem with snowmobilers is, you know, with accidents, they'll spread out. And some will be climbing hills over here and some will be over there and they're not watching each other. So if mm -hmm. something happens, they first have to realize they're missing and then they don't know where they are. So, so maybe just breaking up into groups of two if you're going to go – uh, pit squib around or something, huh? 
Yes. And then, you know, having the radios, you know, that's yeah. definitely changed snowmobiling. Mike, what's your take on how, how do we get more snowmobilers to submit observations to Oh, we're, we're, we're working on that. You know, Jeremy Mercier and I, he's a Skidoo ambassador out of Grand Lake, Colorado, and I, we're going out with some of the forecasters and, you know, shooting some videos and trying to encourage snowmobilers to do it. Here's the problem, though. <laughs> Social media is a problem because if you show where the good powder is, Probably mm-hmm. 300 people there the next day. Right. So snowmobilers aren't very likely to give away their powder stashes. So what we encourage them to do is, hey, just say what zone you're in, you know, mm-hmm. what you're seeing, and submit observations. And in my level one classes, we teach people how to submit observations. Right. So maybe even just an aspect elevation in general, general yep. location. Exactly. <laughs> you don't even Not have your to say the trailhead. <laughs> Exactly. You know, snowmobilers tend to lie about where they go. You know, if we, we all have our secret powder places and we'll say we're somewhere a hundred miles away from that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, places, you know, it's social media. Someone say, well, it was great here today. There'll be a thousand people there the next day. Right. It's a little bit out of hand in my opinion. Right. (laughs) Um, Mike, maybe just run through some of the online resources that you, that you had, suggested throughout this this interview and and maybe kind of like where where can people find out more information oh so if they want on training you know that backcountry ascender is great i was involved with that um you know skidoo will be announcing their online education series here too one question you had asked me when you sent me some notes was where do you learn how to ride a snowmobile? Mm. You know, the, and you're new to it, correct? Yeah, I just bought. I I'm one. I'm one of the statistics. Hopefully, I won't be a bad <laughs> statistic, but I am a statistic of a new new snowmobile owner. Okay, you know, and there's riding schools out there, and they're definitely worth your time. Mm. I mean, with the Navy SEALs, we have to turn them into intermediate riders in four days, and it's an intensive course, and we can do it. But there's these techniques that if you learn this way. You won't, you won't get stuck half as much. You'll be an efficient rider within a few days. Um, so the schools are a great thing to do. They're all over the country. There's also some great videos online. Uh, it's called the Back to School series, and it's spelled S-K-O-O-L. And it's by Brett Rasmussen. It's Ride Rasmussen style. And Brett is an amazing rider, and he does these instructional videos. And they're short, and it's a progression of skills. And if you learn the way he teaches, if you watch these videos, you'll become a much better writer faster. Cool. Sounds, sounds easy. (laughs) Oh, it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Getting stuck your first year, you'll be getting stuck a lot. And, you know, it's like learn the technique and then you're much more efficient. Right. Right. That's good advice. Well, thanks for that, Mike. I know we've been jumping around a little bit here, Mm -hmm. but one thing I've seen you know, I, I live in Southwest Oregon right now, and so I go down to Mount Shasta quite a bit. And Nick Myers down there is the runs the Mount Shasta Avalanche Center, does a great job. But one thing they've tried to do because there is a there's one trail, well, there's a, several winter trailheads, but one main winter trailhead for Mount Shasta, and and it's a confluence of motorized and non motorized. Mm-hmm. users and there's a wilderness boundary right there you can only sled on one side of the road blah 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 and one thing that they've been doing is they started this 
ambassador program, right? Where, sure. um, you know, they're just trying to change kind of the stigma of, of the riders, um, mm-hmm. especially in front of kind of the backcountry skiers in that sure. parking lot. Have you seen that elsewhere? seems to be pretty effective. No, but some of the, I've, you know, I think some of the, you know, at the Vail Pass is a popular area here and the forest service is up there helping people park and things like that. So they're, I think they're kind of the ambassadors, but as far mm-hmm. as not a bad idea, you know, and sometimes I've seen situations where they have one trailhead for snowmobilers and down the road skiers. And it's, that's a much better system. Having everybody in the same parking lot, almost kind of a recipe for disaster in a way. But, you know, everybody can get along. Just, you know, it is good to have an ambassador there to help. Yeah, these guys have, you know, they're wearing climb stuff and it's it's good riders from the community that are just mm-hmm. setting a good example as to how to unload, how to be low impact around other users, right? And so then those backcountry yep. skiers see those people, you know, not in their a fit lycra outfit but in some climb wear mm-hmm. you know and, that's great and, and it's just like a connection point and i'm like oh these these people don't look exactly like me but they're really nice and they're <laughs> just trying to do the same thing in a different way i think that's what a great program yeah yeah i commend them for that yeah hopefully we see see more of that pop up or at least a breakdown in in any tension that there might exist sure so well, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time today to sit down and talk about your history with with avalanche education as a pioneer in motorized avalanche education. I think, you know, the community um, owes you a big, a lot of gratitude for that. So thank you very much for all the work that you do out there and, and getting the word out. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed being on the podcast and I love listening to this when I'm traveling around the country teaching classes. It makes the drives go much faster. And I think the podcast is just an amazing resource for information. You do a great job with it. All right. Well, thank you very much. And you can find out more about Avalanche One. You can check them out on Facebook and and uh, Instagram, the social medias. Um, anywhere else? You got a website too, right? Yeah, we're working on that right now. (laughs) Uh All right. Cool. Well, thank you very much. All right. Cheers, Mike. Have a good one. Okay. Thanks. See ya. Hey, that's a wrap for episode 5.1 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope this helped tune you up to start thinking about avalanche safety and having fun in the backcountry for the upcoming season. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And something I'm doing this season is prior to conducting these interviews with these fine avalanche professionals, I am posting on Instagram who I will be interviewing in the next couple days. And that is where you can include questions. So I'm really trying to facilitate some listener-based questions, as you probably heard from this interview with Mike. And you can submit your questions directly to my Instagram uh, post uh, in a direct message or a comment. Or many times, if you're paying attention to the Instagram story, I've got a little, well, I don't know what you call it, a little post-it up there that you can submit a question right on that story so i'm certainly trying to be a little bit better about the presence on social media for the podcast 
although it certainly doesn't come naturally to me. But that's a great place for you to um, engage with some of these great guests that we're going to have on the show this season. Um, if you have feedback for the show, please feel free to email me again at uh, the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or it is very helpful if, if you go onto whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and just give us a rating. And if you want to take another extra couple minutes to write write a comment about how the show benefits you or or, or what what your favorite episode is, you know, that, that also helps quite a bit. Of course our artwork was done by Mike T. You demand T for any of your illustration needs contact Mike T. You can check out some of his other work on his website, www.miket, that's M-I-K-E-T-E-A, dot com. Music today, we had two tracks bringing us into the hour, and those songs were Strapped and Growing Resistance by Sholin Dub. And taking us out of the hour is Hotbox by Ketza. Both tracks were made possible through the permission of the artist, and you can check out Ketsa, K-E-T-S-A, dot U-K, for all your musical needs. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Don't forget to be nice to each other. Cheers. <laughs>